Hi there, my name is Jose from the Coffee with a Recruiter podcast. Hiring managers are an incredible source of wisdom and insight when it comes to recruitment. So here to discuss all things tech recruitment with me is Gergay Oros. Gergay is an engineering manager, blogger, and writer. He's previously worked at Uber, Skyscanner, and Skype, and today he brings his perspective on tech recruitment, career progression, managing teams, and his book, The Tech Resume Inside Out. His book is full of actionable advice on how to write a good tech resume for developer or manager positions. Excellent. Okay. Hello, Gergay. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks very much. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to connect with me and to to discuss, well, a lot of different things, your experience, what you've been up to recently, um, and 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 your book, of course. I mean, you you wrote a very interesting book that I wanted to unpack a little bit um, that might be of good service to, I think, even to hiring managers, developers, uh, recruiters that could could use a little bit of advice and make the recruitment process and the hiring process for developers much easier, but also help developers primarily, you know, find that that dream job, I think. So thank you so much for that. Um, if you could maybe give us a, a brief introduction to your background, what, what you've done and what you're currently doing. Yeah, so I've... Oh, taking a step back from when I started after I, I, I had a college uh, education in computer science. Uh, I, I'm originally from Hungary, actually, so small country in the middle of uh, Europe. <laughs> and uh, I spent about 10 years working as a software engineer, as, starting from smaller companies, local consultancies, and later financial consultancies. I moved to the UK and lived there for quite a, quite a long time, both in Scotland and in London. And then I made my way to a bit bigger companies. Uh, I worked in an investment bank at J.P. Morgan in London. I then moved uh, to uh, Skype. I like to say Skype, but it was right when Microsoft bought Skype. Uh, but it, for for what most of my time there, it felt a lot more like Skype. Microsoft had this policy of not interfering with their acquisitions for a while. Mm. Then I worked at a, a fast growth startup, uh, Skyscanner. Uh, a lot of people might know them. They're the flight search engine. Uh, when people used to fly before COVID. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, my, my most recent stint was at Uber, where I spent a bit more than four years. I joined the, uh, the Amsterdam office when it was quite small, about 25 engineers, and it almost doubled in size uh, every year to about 150 engineers or so. And I've just recently left Uber. So now I'm I'm working uh, on another book, actually. And I might be, I, I'm exploring potentially starting my own business at some point. Excellent. And I suppose there's, so there's one key book that will unpack one, but what's the second book that you're, that you're currently working on? So the second book is something that I, I've been working on for a while. Uh, it's called The Software Engineer's Guidebook. And it's a, a book about how to grow as a software engineer in a tech company, all the way from the entry-level software engineer to senior through tech lead, uh, all the way to senior staff or, or sorry, staff or principal positions that are typical for at, at larger companies. And those are positions that are often at the same level as, a, let's say, director positions at, com- at places where there's parallel uh, career tracks. I started writing that book because I felt that the software engineering industry has changed a lot in the last last 10 years uh, or so since I've started. And there's a lot of books about how to code or how to do good architecture. But I and, and, and there's some books about soft skills for software engineers, but I didn't really find books about how to succeed in an environment, which these are pretty complex environments. Uh, you, you need to have soft skills. You need to have hard skills. You need to influence people. And I, when I was a manager at Uber, I've coached a lot of people on how to grow to that senior or staff level. And it's not really trivial, but it is really rewarding. And so hopefully uh, it'll spread some knowledge uh, in the industry, both with people working at these companies or people wanting to get into these companies. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when it comes to things like career progression, um, there's very little material out there, but especially from people that are doing the job, right? A lot of uh, books and guidelines are written by non-sort of engineers or non-practitioners. It's mostly people that maybe came out of you know a different industry and became like a guru or a, a job coach or a, a you know an inspirational sort of speaker and just started doing their own business and and we don't really have advice from people that have done it before. You know, like 
you know, like an engineering manager such as yourself, right? And can tell people, well, in practice, this is how it works. And also you can, and I think you mentioned this um, here and there also, but even, you know, people that you've met before, other engineers, other managers that have progressed, you can name examples, you can borrow examples from other people. So I think that's definitely um, something that, that we really need, especially in, in, in a tricky environment, right? I suppose, are you mainly looking at technical backgrounds and, and technical companies and, and helping engineers in these environments, right? Yeah, so so my, my, mine is very specifically for, for software engineers. And it is a pretty broad group, I think, but it is, it is definitely for people who either work at larger tech companies or at startups that are a bit more modern these days. Uh, a lot of startups have, uh, borrow the same traits as some of these, these companies do. So I'm looking at the what I call modern environment, which I'm expecting will be the normal environment in, in five to 10 years time. Uh, things, like, things like micromanaging engineers, uh, having a hierarchical workplace where it's a, it's a developer, a senior developer, and the manager. A manager makes more money and, and is more important and makes all the decisions. Those places are still there, but I do think they're going to potentially shrink in percentage of the industry. Uh, this the same way as as we've seen certain practices just take over the industry. I'll I'll give you an example: continuous integration and continuous deployment. Ten years ago, a few big companies had it. Um, Google, uh, maybe Facebook didn't even necessarily have it back in the day, and now it's everywhere. Uh, so, and I, I think culture wise, we'll also see a bit of a shift in the industry. But that's just my guess. So, uh, I think it. it, it what you mentioned, it's true. A lot of people who are doing it and are really good at this uh, and are making a good career either don't have the time or don't put the energy to summarize this. And I don't blame them because it's a really lucrative career. You make a lot of money, uh, especially when you work in Silicon Valley. And it might just not be worth your time. It also might be difficult to do when you're working at one of these companies because yeah. uh, you might not be allowed to share too much, especially some companies are really tight-lipped about their approach. So it's a bit of a benefit of me being now outside. I have been in the inside. Obviously, I cannot share confidential information, but uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier for me to go ahead and, and publish this book as well, for example. And one thing that I wanted to, to unpack, well, since we're starting with this one, um, career progression might be an interesting one to unpack because I suppose you're looking into that right now. Um, so I guess a question would be, um, and I know it's it's a tricky one because you can write a whole book on this, you know, and which you, what you're doing right now. But sort of what would be the some of the key tips that you would give engineers when they're looking to, you know, they're starting as a junior and, uh, you know, they're looking to progress into senior and then potentially into an engineering manager role. And they're navigating this complex environment and it's, you know, they need to have the technical skills, but Right then they realize, oh, I need to also engage, you know, know how to manage people, know how to influence, how to communicate well. What would be sort of the top sort of maybe three tips that you would you would give engineers? Well, the first one would be is to be somewhat patient and make it to that senior level. And this might be a senior level at your company. Uh, at some places, senior level might is a little bit lower. Sometimes they give away titles, but get to that level where you you have been in the industry for a few years. You you know you failed multiple times, and and you've learned about yourself. You now know how to solve difficult problems. And to me, a senior level would also mean that you're comfortable at least two languages and environments. For example, you know the you know the backend very well, and maybe you, you can dabble on the web or the other way around. So having a bit of a breadth as well as depth to me that that's a senior. And I think it's important to get this to this level before you start to decide where you want to go because. Um, I know some people, for example, who went into management earlier and, and they regretted it, that they didn't take the time to uh, to learn about, uh, to go a bit deeper. Then once you're at senior, and, and it should be relatively easy to get to senior in the sense that there are mentors around either in the company or even if there's not in a company, there's now communities uh, where you can get that mentorship. So you should be, if you're in the industry, you should be able to get to senior in a matter of five years-ish, you know, give or take like four, four, four to eight years. For example, in my case, I, I got the senior title maybe after seven years. I, I wasn't counting, but <laughs> yeah. it, it, it kind of felt right uh, at the time. I, I wasn't in a, in a hurry, if you will. Now, the second one is once you're at senior, you, you might 
have opportunities to go into management or or to progress. Uh, after senior, it's a bit of a question mark. So some people will stay at a senior level at the rest of their career and be happy. Some people will move into management. Now, my next suggestion is that, that at that point, I will suggest people, for people to experiment and take opportunities. So I'll give an example. Some companies, you might get the opportunity to become a manager. And I know people who passed on it because they were like, I don't want to do people management. I personally thought those people made a bit of a mistake because these opportunities don't get around, come around that often. I'm also mentoring some people who are frustrated. They, they really want to get into management after 15 years as an engineer, but they cannot because there's no openings. So my suggestion is like do experiment, uh, try out the people part, you know, become a tech lead, a team lead, or an engineering manager if you have an opportunity and see if you like it. Um, now, you can only learn from this, op- this experience because either it turns out you're a good people manager and you want to do it and maybe it'll change careers. Or it might turn out that you're not good at it or you don't like it, but you learn a lot about how kind of the other side works and you're going to be a far more efficient engineer. And then comes my third advice is uh, don't be afraid to alternate uh, kind of swim lanes, if, if you will. It's now becoming more popular to switch between career paths, for example, going to engineer manager and going into staff engineer. Um, and to become a staff engineer uh, or, or a principal engineer or someone who's beyond senior, you do need to have people skills and you need to understand the business. That part becomes a lot more important at the, more, the later you progress in your career. These days, the most influential software engineers are not just good at engineering. They're great at communicating, knowing the business, and so on. So, you know, the, if, if you only take away one advice, though, is just be curious uh, and and learn. There's so much to learn all the time, and the industry keeps changing. So, yeah, hopefully that's helpful. Absolutely. One one thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, speaking with engineers um, every day on my side is that when people are looking for new opportunities, that's one of the things they mention, right? It's like, oh, what are you looking for in the next role? And they'll they'll tell you, well, career progression is an important one, and perhaps even um, a, a pathway into potentially a leadership role or maybe moving into a leadership role, um, which, you know, trying to use a... a, a uh, what's a good way of putting it? Like, you know, leaving a company and moving into a new one where you can get that role. I think it seems quite difficult, right? Like you you need to, at least from what I've seen is you need to have longevity in, in one company in order to get that role as opposed to leaving one company and getting the promotion immediately in the next one. Or, or what would you say about that? Maybe I'm wrong. For the most part, yes. Uh, I, I, I do think software engineers, when they hit a few years in the industry and they had a good run, they got promoted, they got to a senior role. I see a lot of people having really um, unrealistic expectations. Some people start off as an engineer, they get promoted in two years to so like an en- engineer two or whatever it's called. And then another two years, they get promoted to senior and they kind of expect that's what's going to happen in two years. They'll get to manager or to staff and then to principal. But the reality is after the senior level, things slow down a lot. Mm. And I can't talk for all industries, but senior engineers, for the most part, wherever country you live in, make as much money as, let's say, in retail, um, a department manager who, who, who manages 30 people and, and, and you know, like five of them are managers. That's, and, and that person has done that for 20 years and they're really good. And that, that, that's often what a senior engineer will be an equivalent of. So after that level, it, it becomes really difficult to actually progress. You, and a lot of people don't realize that. And going back to your question, moving into leadership role in any company, which might be actually managers or, or it might be the staff route, it, it is really difficult to do from the outside. Companies will invest in their own people. So it's a lot easier to go in there and, and move uh, from the inside. And I'll give you my, my own example. I was a principal engineer at Skyscanner. So one of the few principal engineers back uh, in, in at a company, I think it was like 700 people at the time or so. And when I moved to Uber, uh, I was also heading up a team. I hired my own team. And when I interviewed with Uber, they asked if uh, I got got an offer and I asked if I could be a team leader, a tech leader or something. And they said, we already have one. No, you can be a senior. Like I got a senior role and I was happy with that. And it was actually a a bump in my compensation, despite the title change (laughs) technically going lower, but there you go. And once I was there, uh, 
I, I, I was able to move into management because I, I was able to prove my value and, and I, I did have a lot of experience, but no one promised me that. And I'm glad they didn't because they, they would have been lying. So people who are talking to recruiters expecting that a company will say, you know, we'll hire you and you will have this career path to leadership. They're just lying. <laughs> this this is not the case. Once you're in, you can, you know, some people will, will progress rapidly in a company, but uh being around for a while, especially when you hit that senior role, it, it does become important for you to understand the business, to understand where things go. Because again, uh, to progress beyond senior, it's not about software engineering. It's not. It's, mm. it's, about, it's about making a business-wide impact, helping the business. I'm, I'm mentoring staff, engineers who are about to become staff engineers on the side right now at uh, companies that are about to go IPO. And the biggest discussions I'm having with them is, is, is how are they predicting where the business is going? How will they build what the business needs in six months? How are they going to build that now? Uh, it's, it's fascinating. That, that's what, what this, this kind of you know, beyond senior levels, a lot of them are about partially. It's, it's also about mentoring and some other things. But I, I, I do think some people still have it in their heads. Oh, I'm a smart engineer. I know how to code things and I'll, I'll have a an infinite career going upwards. You'll have it until a while, but after a while, you'll need to acquire new skills. Yeah, and I also think companies, they're looking for previous leadership skills if they're, they want to hire a, a manager, right? So so applying as an individual contributor in hopes of getting a manager role, you know, they'll end up just saying, well, you you haven't done the job before 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 being able to to apply right so there's that's one thing to yeah to consider. And that's an, that's an interesting <laughs> one I, I i do talk with engineers who are frustrated they're they're often just bored after like 15 or 20 years of being an individual contributor and doing mm. the same thing and they're being tired of the the young kids you know like for them it's, it's kids but they're, they're faster they're better and they, they'd like to go into management to relax a little bit but they can't because they don't have that experience and this goes back to my my advice as once you hit senior and you do have an opportunity, because if you're in a growing company, you might have that opportunity, do make a point to try out management. If you've been a manager for even a year and it didn't work out, a few years later at a different company, you might be able to move into management. You might be able to say, you know, you know what, I've done that before. I was a manager five years ago. Uh, I have that experience. So you just, uh, I, I think it's important that people take ownership of their career and you and you start to to kind of build up almost if it was a video game, like collect items that yeah. you can later <laughs> use items being experiences. And a lot of people really just stick to, to this, you know, narrow path, whatever they see others do. It's a lot more than that. So, you know, just, just ex- expand your inventory on, on the, on the way. Yeah. You need to gain that extra XP, you know, experience points. Um, yeah, exactly. I suppose. Okay. We've talked about how to get to, to the top, right. Of, of, of management, but, um, once you're there, right, you know, what gets you to the dance doesn't keep you in the dance, as they say, right? So once you're there, once you're managing, what's, what's, what's the best way of managing engineers? And how, how do you do that? Do you, do you have a particular method, a, a way? What's, what's your approach? Once you're a manager, I think for a lot of things change. And it's a completely different game. As, as you said, what got you there will not get you further. I can only tell you what worked for me. And this will everyone will have to figure out their own management style and, and the environment might be different as well. I, I became a manager. I was both a manager at Skyscanner, which was a startup and at Uber, which is more of a Silicon Valley hyper growth company. What works for me is first just have empathy. I, I think it's great when you were an engineer because you know what it's like. Uh, you, uh, you know, you, you know what you, what you liked about your old managers and what you didn't. And that's my second advice is, I, I think I became a pretty, an okay manager, a decent manager based on the feedback I've got. We had anonymous surveys that, that came back with saying that I, I wasn't a terrible manager, but my, my main management style was shaped by the managers that I, I really disliked. I, I had, as, as, an, as I was an engineer, I must have had at least 10 managers at different companies and they switched sometimes. And at some point, I, I decided that one day I wouldn't mind being a manager. And I started to observe my managers a lot more and a lot closer. And I started to make a list of things that I really, really hated that they did. And the two that stood out, one of them was micromanagement. I had a manager who was a fantastic manager, really smart, really strong technical skills. But this person micromanaged. They told me what to do all the time. And they couldn't delegate. They gave me a project to run, and I, and I was running it. 
And I, I told them, I gave them an update saying, I think we're going to be late, but I have a plan and I think we're going to make it. And they stepped in, they took it away from me. And, and oh, wow. I, I, I still remember that. I, I, I hate that. I, 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 but as a person, you know, I, I like, I understand them a lot more now as a manager, but this was just bad management on there. And, and by the way, they didn't even know. Uh, mm. And I, I didn't know at the time. The other management style that I really hated was a bit of a don't care management. I had this super supportive manager. I love this manager. Uh, every time we had a one-on-one, I asked them, do you have some feedback? And they were like, well, not really. You're doing a great job. I went there saying, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? They always said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And then performance review came. Uh, we had once a year. And my performance review, I was a company that had a forced curve. And I was right in the middle of the curve. I, I was not in the top 30%. I, I knew the distribution. And I was, I couldn't believe it. Uh, all year, all I heard is good job, well done. And and, I, and then I realized this, this manager was a don't care manager. They said yes to everything. They didn't give a damn. I thought they were a great manager, and I ended up leaving the team afterwards because I realized they just they just they just didn't care. Uh, it it seemed like it. So I had these two very strong experiences, and when I became manager, my goal was I just want to be better than these than this management style. So I, I don't want to micromanage ever, and I also don't want to be the don't care manager. And the third one was I. I always left teams after performance reviews. I was just disappointed with my manager. I was like, really. Like, you know, like you could have not told me that earlier. So my, my other goal was I, I want to make sure that my performance reviews will not be a surprise. So people should ex- should know what to expect. If they're not doing well, I shouldn't wait until the performance review. I should tell yeah. them up front saying, hey, here's what's happening. Here's here's the expectation. Here's what you're not doing. Can we fix it? Uh, so these were the three things that motivated me. But my, my biggest, and I, I do ask this from people who become managers, I ask them to tell me who is the worst manager they've had and why. And mm-hmm. what are they going to do to not be that manager? So I, I think the bar is still not very high. Like I, I'm sure there's some good managers, but the managers I've had were mediocre at best, except for maybe one exception. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, there wasn't really training back then. They didn't get feedback. So just aim to be better than any of your previous managers. And if you do that, you will already raise the bar across the industry, I'm pretty sure. Absolutely. I can completely relate to that. It it kind of feels like when you're, and I see this in recruitment also, but um, when you're looking for a manager or you're looking for a candidate, a lot of people use the, the same method. They look for like a dating partner, you know, because they had a crazy ex. The ex was like always hassling them, chasing them, micromanaging them. So the next partner they look for, they need to be the complete opposite, right? So they need to be more chill, more relaxed, more easygoing. Um, and I think Oddly enough, and I think in a, in a good way, we we learn from these experiences, right? You know, we experience something that was not not ideal. So then we think, oh, okay, no, the uh, I'll be the opposite, you know, or or something close to the opposite, um, in order to 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 yeah, become and, better. And by the way, one, one thing I didn't add because I, I did have strong negative experiences, but obviously look at the positives. So I did have mm. a list of things that I really liked about my managers. Uh, including my, my manager at Uber, who I started with, I I took a lot of from them, and even this this my, the person I mentioned who was micromanager, they had some very strong qualities, very strong technical skills. They raised the bar across the team, and I actually borrowed a lot of ideas from them. And it's it's very interesting to see because when I left uh, Uber, I you know a few people opened up and they told me things that they liked or they didn't like. But a lot of things that they mentioned that they liked was actually not really my idea. I just copied it from someone else, but people didn't know that. So, so you know, just copy the good and try to avoid the bad that, that you see. 100%. Well, that leads me to, to one thing, because as a manager, hiring is one of the key responsibilities, right? I mean, you're a manager, you're growing your team, and you're looking for specific skill sets or, or as they call it, you know, a culture fit, or, and you have a certain process in mind. I guess, you know, broadly speaking, uh, you know, what's your approach to, to hiring engineers or developers? Um, and I guess, you know, I guess broadly speaking, what would be your, your approach? And then we can go into specifics. So that's an interesting question because I can tell you what, what my approach was when I worked at these large companies, Uber, uh, Skyscanner, and, and similar companies. And, and it's it's really the approach of how the com- those companies hire. They, mm-hmm. they have a playbook and they have a reason, and I'll talk about this. But I am, if, if I'll start my own company, I think I'll hire differently because 
one thing I noticed with these companies, these are what, what, what these processes share. These are typical in order to get into these companies, you need to only pass, you know, six difficult interviews, no big deal. Mm, (laughs) And and then, and then you're wondering why you don't have much diversity. You don't have too many females or, or, okay, maybe some companies do manage, but you don't have too many minorities. And actually my, my wife, who's a, who's, who was a bootcamp grad. She, she went to bootcamp and she changed careers, became a front end developer. When she was interviewing, it was really eye opening on how stressful she found it. And she just didn't proceed with companies who had a reputation of being this, this stressful, honestly, she was like, she didn't need that stress in her life. Um, so, So the approach that all these companies had and that I used to have is, well, we only hired the best. So let's make sure that we, um, we we filter for the key signals and and these companies and I, I'm speaking also on behalf of I, I didn't work there but I know this is how it works Facebook Google uh, the, the hiring process by the way at some of these companies was was put together by Gay Lackman McDonald or she as she consulted uh, in uh, author of cracking the coding interview uh, in, oh. including at one of my previous companies so it's a, it's an interesting one that that book works quite well because she does consult a lot of companies and I think the two help each other the new versions of the book might have the the slight changes but these these companies are they hire for generalist software engineers so they don't care you know if how many years of experience you have with one specific technology but they want people who can learn quickly and they they test this by testing for problem solving typically giving you a problem that should be able solvable in like 30 to 45 minutes which usually involve data structures and algorithms and this is the also known as a lead code interview. Uh, new grads these days are just grinding on lead code, doing hundreds of questions to prepare for this interview. Mm. And then these companies will also filter for a more senior level on how, how would you build a system, which is known as system design, which again is, is absolutely learnable. There's now more, more and more resources on it. And it's to do with trade-off analysis and, and just talking about your past experience. It's a bit of a chicken and egg. You typically get better at this when you work at a company that, that does this, but you can <laughs> learn it. And then there, there's the last thing, which is motivation and, and communication. Uh, so those will be filtered out early on. But at these places, you need to have flawless code or, well, code that runs good enough. Uh, a, a positive personality um, do well in the interviews. These companies don't like to take risks. And, and I understand. I was a hiring manager. Uh, I, I, I did have the option of, do I want to take a risk on this person? And if it doesn't work out, I wasted you know, three months of my life and I have to hire again. Or do I just take the next one who's more stable? And, and these companies have a continuous influx of candidates. So usually they don't take risks, really. Mm. It's, they're, they're, these hiring processes, for better or worse, do look for a bit of a cookie cutter um, profile. Someone who is codes well under stress on the spot, uh, has done their preparation and, you know, didn't shy away from it and, and is a positive person. And, and these hires do work out well. So um, I, did, I didn't, as, as a hiring manager, I didn't have many hires that I regret. Uh, there were hires that we turned away that in hindsight, maybe they would have worked out. I'm, I'm not sure, but we didn't, I didn't feel that I had the luxury to, to experiment too much, especially that these places, a lot of times you don't even hire for yourself. So as a hiring manager, I often hired for other teams uh, as well. Now, um, yeah, oh, sorry, well, yeah, sorry. And yeah, what ahead. I would change, and I think there's a huge opportunity for smaller companies, is I would definitely not copy this model if I was a smaller company. I would make it a bit more personal, uh, if you will. For some positions, for some junior positions, I would probably take risks on, on people, uh, which would mean it would be easy to hire. But uh, I would do that after I have some seniors uh, in place who can also mentor so uh, I, I might spice the process up a little bit or, or give people options to do either take-homes or do an on-site coding interview, decide which one they want to take. It's a little bit more work. Uh, the result would likely be to be able to fill positions a lot faster. Uh, candidates would be a lot more interested. And uh, I would able, be able to outreach to, the, to candidates who are uh, in, in the minority or diversity group and actually advertise to them saying, you know, we're not doing this usual uh, hiring process. It's also a way to compete with these big companies. You cannot compete on salary. I, I know the Uber mm. salaries. I, I made a lot of money. If I was a smaller company, I, I, I couldn't pay myself that much. That's so interesting. What do you what do you consider a risk profile versus like oh a, a stable profile? Like what would what's 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 the characteristics like of of candidates where you thought oh they they seem good but there's something off and it might be a risk versus oh this is a very stable candidate i just speak my interest 
So at Uber and some other places, there's this thing called a debrief. So it's not just the hiring manager making the, the decision. It's not that people submit, but everyone gets together who was on the interview and we discuss and we come to an agreement. The hiring manager still has a say and the rule that Uber, for example, has there's a bar raiser, which is an experienced engineer and they do a kind of generic interview and the hiring manager, both of them can veto. But in practice, if, if a couple of engineers are saying this should be a no hire, we're not going to hire. The... I did see a lot of vetoes from engineers coming on, let's say coding. The code the code did not run by the end of the session. Mm. We never hired those people, even though yeah. a lot of them could, would have been probably good hires. But we did this because we had one or two experiences where we, we brought the person in and they needed mentorship on coding. And we could do that, but it's just so time consuming at a fast moving company. And, uh, and you know, people were then looking, well, you know, why are we bringing in people who, who aren't perfect with coding? So it's a bit of a self-selection. Um, and, and also it goes back to the keep like these companies will advertise that they only hire the best. It's, it's hard to tell engineers why would we lower the bar if, if that's the bar. The other one was, was more interesting on design. If you didn't get along well with the interviewer, it was probably no from there. <laughs> and then and, and yeah. I, I, I had this at Facebook, by the way, when I interviewed there, I just didn't get along well with that person. I don't think I did particularly well, but I, I didn't get an offer. Apparently, it was a, it, it, I was in a limbo for a while, longer than usual, the recruiter told me, but that's just how it is. So I feel there was some self-selection there. And hiring managers, by, by default, the, the format is meant to be more democratic, but because of this, hiring managers don't have as much of a say uh, than in some places. So I, I, I don't think a lot of hiring managers will feel comfortable taking a risk. And you don't have an incentive to do so. You literally, if you say no to this person, you'll have someone in two days who you can have, who is going to pass the panel. The, the, mm. These are, this is a this, this is a factory. Uh, these these companies are hiring a crazy amount of people. They they have good PR. They're, they're known to uh, have really good benefits. They're great for your career. There's no shortage of people coming here, and and people who sometimes some of these candidates, honestly. Uh, the advice we gave to them, and and they could have come back, is come back in six months. Just do a bit more preparation, do a bit more practice. One thing that I think people should, candidates should realize, if anyone's listening, if you come rusty to these interviews, you're not going to get an offer. People will not take a chance on like, oh, I guess this person is rusty. Uh, let's let's get them in here. Uh, wherever they're paying top of the market salary, Netflix, Facebook, Uber is in, in this camp as well. They'll expect you to do your homework. And if not, you, you can still come back in six months. Again, it, it is to their advantage. It is hard to find a similar offer uh, in the market usually. And you mentioned candidates failing the the coding interview. So I'm curious to know on this your thoughts on this and what you would advise hiring managers. So so let's talk about coding interviews because there's different ways you can play this. You can do like a take home type assignment. You can do an on site assignment. You can do a live video paired paired coding type assignment. Do you, is there a, a best way to do this? Um, for, first of all, is there, a, is there a preferred method or does it depend on the circumstance? What would you, you know, if a, if a hiring manager is considering doing the stage, what, you know, what would you advise them to keep in mind? It's all based on the constraints you have and how much you want to invest. So the best experience, the best result is when you usually, by the way, not, not with everyone, but for most people, I mean, if, if you were to... The, the, the best possible option is when you give a candidate a choice saying, hey, do you want to do a pairing with engineers or do you want to do a take-home? And, and then we'll talk about the take-home. Uh, this is the best uh, experience because some people are really stressed when they're sitting in a room or a video call with one or two engineers. There's just profiles like that. There's just, just people like that. And they'd much rather just do it on their own pace. And some some people are the opposite. They're like, some people are, are absolutely upset that why, why would I work for free? They, they think it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. work, uh, but they're okay with doing a one-hour one. Uh, in general, I, I think you usually get the best, well, stress is a factor, so you might not have the, the best one, but you get a pretty good signal when you you do have um, a live coding. So you, you work together. It's more of a collaboration because you get signals on how well this, how does the person think, how do they collaborate, how do they take advice, uh, how pragmatic are they? Because these uh, these problems are usually not, they're, they're not meant to be super difficult, but they, they will also show if you're just not hands-on and, and you have trouble with, let's say, your ID. The problem with this approach is it is quite expensive for the company, especially when you're hiring a lot of people. So the company will need to decide how much of my time do I want 
how much of my engineers time do I want them to spend interviewing and the companies that either don't want their engineers to interview too much or don't have enough engineers, they'll they'll go and do something like hacker rank or you automate this, which is a lot worse experience for everyone, not as good signal, but it's cheaper. Uh, and, and it also goes, goes back to if a company really wants to invest in a candidate experience, they might do a second follow-up. So at, at Uber, at some point, we we asked people to say yes, no, or maybe. And when it was a maybe, we had a second interview. And now we found that usually the maybes were no's by mm. the second time. And then we asked people to just make a decision after an hour. But you can see, you could do a lot of things. So it the candidates rightfully complain about how terrible the interviewing kind of interviewing is as a candidate because you get all these no no shows and then you get rejections and these difficult problems but in reality it's it's the, it's the companies who decide how they do this uh, the big companies facebook google uh, uber is, is in here they've consciously decided that they want to have a good interview experience and that's why they will they will rarely do except for new grads or interns but outside of that they, they will not do the automated code testing they will pair you with an engineer so even if you if you don't make it, you had an experience of working with an engineer. And that engineer, actually, in their training, they they need to make sure that you have a good experience. So, for example, if they see you're, you're going to fail and you're a no, they'll try to wrap it up and, and, and not make you feel stupid uh, and then give you time to ask questions. They're going to talk about what it's like. The goal is always for the candidate to have a good experience. Uh, and that's actually part of what any better uh, company trains their their interviewers to do. So Would you say going that's back to the what, toughest what, what, stage. Sorry? Would you say that's the toughest stage, the coding uh, session? Almost always, yeah. Yeah. If if it's, it's it's the binary stage. If someone doesn't get working code on the coding, it's gonna be a no. It doesn't matter how well you did. There might be some extreme exceptions, but that's usually the case because companies don't want to take a, a chance on hiring someone who is going to do 50% of their time coding, at least initially, you really want that to be a check mark. Yeah. Uh, all the other ones are, are like, they're a lot harder to fail, except for the design, the architecture and design for senior candidates. That's also, if, if they don't do well, it's a no-go. But that, if, if you already got there, you'll probably like get the hang of it in, in no time. And if you're smart, you just invest in some of these resources. Like there's books and courses that for 100 or 200 bucks, you can actually just get the practice that you need for them. Is there anything both candidates and hiring managers can do to to remove the the nerves off of these sort of sessions? You know, because they I can imagine they can be quite nerve wracking. These like a paired coding um, session with 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 like the likes of Uber or a Skyscanner. What's what's the best way to ease the you know the nervousness, the jitters? I think the best is to practice. I'll, I'll, a lot of people assume that. All, all you need to do is to clear these interviews is, is to be a, a good software engineer. And it's not true. Uh, these interviews are different than your day-to-day job. They do filter for, for different type of skill sets, but especially at these big companies, usually the people who interview there, if you get an offer, it'll be a really good offer. It, it, your composition will go up. You'll, uh, If you didn't have equity before, you're going to get equity. Uh, even the most junior engineers at Uber in Amsterdam got at least $15,000 per year just in equity. That's mm. uh, it's it's crazy. A lot of people have have never heard about this. So, so these are this is this companies. Now the problem is that a lot of other companies start to copy what Google and Facebook and Uber do. I think it's silly, but they do. So now <laughs> there's this vicious cycle that you're you're now you're like okay, I don't want to get a job on top company, but you go to a local small company, and now you're getting the same type of same type of interview because they just cargo culted and and took they they think that's how it's done. So my biggest advice is, and this has paid off tremendously, there's a lot of people complaining online, or, or at least I see some, some forums where people complain on how much you need to prepare. Just prepare. Uh, there's so many places you can practice. There's there's online sites. They're, they're free. You can also pay for it if you want a bit better quality or you don't mind the money, and, and you just prepare. I, I can thank most of like getting into Uber and, and Skyscanner. Uh, I I interviewed at Facebook once, maybe five years or so ago, and I spent two months preparing outside of work. I, I bought the book, Cracking the Coding Interview. I, I, I think I got another book. I went through the whole thing. I did probably a hundred of these exercises, and that's it. Uh, for the rest of my life, I, I didn't do any of it, uh, including at Uber, but I just know how to do these things. And yeah, I can pass the interview, and I, I'm good at now. Uh, I'm good at interviewing. 
and then and then interview. So go go and interview. It's it it I th- I see interviewing as it's a high effort but high reward um, uh, kind of activity right now. Yeah. And, and by the yeah. way, my, my view is uh, it you know like people who think it's hard to it's hard to interview as a software engineer. Just talk to your lawyer friends or, or talk to people <laughs> in economy because as as a lawyer, if you want to get into a top company, you're not going to get an interview unless you come from Harvard or Yale. That's it. In software, you get an interview even if you have it, or you can get an interview even if you're out of a boot camp, and they're going to ask you exactly the same question as they asked from Harvard. Yeah. You don't have much of an advantage when you have a Harvard uh, tech or MIT uh, degree in, in tech as, as it's it's just not a segregator. So I think it's a really democratic process. It is very much knowledge based, and and you can you can prepare for it. You just need to put in the time and. And it is more difficult for some people, but all the information is absolutely public. And, and these companies also share how they do the interviews and, and they share advice and preparation and so on. So research and practice, guys, that's 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 the key thing, you know, to, to, yeah, to do for these, for these interviews. Um, now, taking taking the position of, of the candidate um, and understanding sort of what what they need to do in order to, to land a, a great, you know, amazing, amazing role, you... You wrote a book, um, and I wanted to unpack sort of um, the the book itself, what it's all about, the purpose, and can you, if you can, give us a little bit of the content, Gergay. Yeah, so this book is called The Tech Resume Inside Out, and it it covers the the very challenging phase of applications where probably one of the biggest drop offs happen, or which is often the most difficult to cross, is from when you submit to your resume to getting that first recruiter call. And what are things that you can do to to refactor your resume or even activities outside a resume to do to actually get that recruiter call? Because uh, I started to write this book. Uh, originally, I thought this would be a few pages in, in the bigger book that I, I'm, I'm writing about software engineering careers. Because I think one of the advice I'm giving in that book is you do want to sometimes go out and interview and either change jobs because you'll get more experience or just even if you don't change jobs, you know... Uh, what, what your value is, or you know how difficult the job market is. Uh, I started. I, I wrote this a book after Corona started and layoffs started happening in the software industry. I had some some people on my team, unfortunately, were even uh, laid off, and I, I started to offer help to people, both at people I knew and, and people outside of the companies. And on Twitter, I, I offered to do free resume reviews for software engineers for a week. Uh, I thought I, I'll get a few requests, but I got three hundred. So I started to go through these. But one thing I noticed is all of these resumes, most of them were just just poorly written. And as a hiring manager, I'm used to poorly written resumes because most of my time, let's say at Uber and Skyscanner as a hiring manager, we, we just got really poorly written resumes. And it didn't matter because if if it was for anyone over two years of experience, we we did get a lot of applications, but not that many. We would read through it and we would you know take the time to understand. But with Corona, the application... Even for software engineers, the application uh, volume has gone up because fewer companies are hiring, more people are mm-hmm. looking for jobs. And now a lot of companies, uh, in, including what, what I saw uh, back there, is uh, you just you don't spend time on, on resumes that are just not written well or, or don't play to the strengths of, of, of the people. So that's what this book is about. Uh, it's, it's about one-third of the book, interesting enough, it's not about the resume. It's about how the hiring process works because... I think that's what most people miss. A lot of people just write a resume, they copy their friends, and they don't think too much about it. They think, yeah, I just write my life story, and, and that's that's all I need to say. They're not aware. That the biggest mistake most people do is they, they don't know what the resume is for. The resume is only a tool for you to get that first recruiter conversation. That's it. it it's a binary, yes or no. After that, your resume doesn't really matter that much. And the number one thing that people can do uh, to make their resume successful outside of getting a referral is to tailor their resume for the 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 place that they're applying for Mm. Uh, and this is what most people don't do and don't know yeah it's such a it's such an important one i mean um you know people get rejected all the time and especially you know you could see like oh they're great great engineers um you you talk to them and they're great communicators they can talk about their experience um, and then you present the CV to the hiring manager and the hiring manager is like, well, I just, you know, the CV, I'm just not feeling it. 
And then as a recruiter, you're like, yeah, what maybe, maybe talk to them. They're, 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 they're really good. Just, I appreciate the CV might not be the, the best looking one, the shiniest one, or, or, or it's maybe poorly written, but they're actually a, a good, you know, you know, if you, if you speak to them, they're actually really good. So candidates are doing themselves a bit of a disservice if they're, they're, they're writing a poor CV. Um, I guess what, what would be sort of the, the main tips? I mean, you wrote a whole book, obviously, so there's, there's loads to go into, but what would be maybe the most common mistakes that you've seen as a, as a manager, you know, red flags on CVs or, or, you know, you know, tricky, tricky parts in CVs that you've encountered? Yeah, so one is just the CV format. Uh, it's so you don't want the CV to trigger biases, and these biases are real. I mean, I, I worked at a company that was very much aware of the biases, but a good example is just having a full format that's super old school. It just screams <laughs> that this person has never seen it. You know, the photo is there. They put their their birth date, number of kids, mm, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so so you 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 don't want to stand out like. Actually, as a software engineer, you really don't want to stand out. This also goes for a super designy, uh, you know, custom-made graphics CV. I, I've had people reach out to me and asking why they're not getting responses. I know why. Well, that's that's not a CV. That's a design document, and you're a software mm-hmm. engineer. And no one will take the time to. Well, m- maybe some people will, but but again, uh, the the other thing is, few people have em- empathy, but. As a hiring manager, what I, when I usually did CV screening or resume screening, I, again, I as a candidate, I have this. I imagine that the hiring manager takes the time and reads it, checks out my GitHub. <laughs> That's not how it usually works in my experience. As a hiring manager, I, I really want to put recruitment first, and I, I try to make time for my recruiters because you know they're they're helping me. But in reality, a lot of stuff is a lot more important. Uh, retaining people is more important. The fire, the on-call that we have is more important. My boss just had a meeting for me. That's more important. So by the time I get to looking at resumes, it's it's somewhere I have 15 minutes between two meetings and I have 30 resumes to go through. And I'm just going to go boom, boom, boom. Yes, yes, no, no. I know I'm missing some great people, but honestly, I don't have the time. So if someone didn't put the effort to, and and this is where tailoring the resume, the the next big mistake is not tailoring the resume to the job description comes into play because I wrote that job description or with my recruiter. So one of the two of us wrote it or we sometimes some hiring managers delegated to recruiters, but that job description pretty much has what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And if I see some of those words come back on the CV, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, this is what I need. This is the person I need because all I'm thinking is, you know, Jack just quit and I need a new Jack ideally. I know it's not going to be Jack, but it'll be someone who can fill that void in there. Uh, So, so tailoring it uh, or, or, rephrasing things in, in a way where, where you do see some of the, the main asks that the job has. If the job says, we're looking for experience with one of these four programming languages, Java, Python, Ruby, or, or Node.js, because actually that's all the ones we use in the company, I probably want to see one of those first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one, uh, which is specific to tech companies that are more general. So these Silicon Valley tech companies or, or these fast-moving companies, I... I, I I like to see when I see someone use active verbs saying I did this or I did that with numbers, that tells me that this person is aware of their impact. They're curious. Uh, they, they're not just a developer who you just need to tell them what to do. But when I see someone, a lot of the, the resumes are saying, you know, you know, like it almost reads like there were tasks, tasks to, you know, I was implementing services. I was yeah. reviewing tickets. Uh, uh, these ing things with with zero specifics, not even the language, not even the technology, you kind of associate that with someone who's a passive person. You need to tell them what to do. It's going to be more hassle than it's worth. So those will be the three big big advices, which is don't go overly flashy. Have a clear and readable format. Um, tailor to, to so your experiences reflect, you know, do not make things up, but obviously reflect to whatever the job description asks for and, and put things in order as well. Uh, in, in, in what could be important for this position and talk about your impact, be, use active words and, and try to figure out what was your impact when you say you shipped a major project tell me why it was major. Lines of code, number of people, uh, requests per second, why? So, so, yeah, that, so that's the top three that I would give. Yeah, especially that, you know, the impact, right? I mean, and making it a quantifiable uh, impact, right? You know, somehow putting it in numbers, like, okay, you know, what impact did you have? 
on on I guess one of the key things that I look for personally is an impact on the customers and how the customers you know somehow reacted to to the changes you contributed to the product or something along those lines. So really making it clear that oh this is the impact that I had in in my current or previous role. Um, that's that's so important. And hiring managers are really looking uh, at that. And it's it's yeah. funny you mentioned the uh, the red flags on things like um, I think it was you know I see some some things on as you you know I I gotta say like old school sort of CVs right like marriage status or driving license or um, uh, you know uh, number of kids. It's like oh, okay uh, that's. Okay, and, and you know, also that's what, interesting. What, what, what people what people don't realize is this also it it flags a cultural potential cultural issue that <laughs> as a hiring manager you don't want to deal with. So if, if someone doesn't really know or didn't take the time to research or look at one one of these templates or, or even just read one of these books, uh, why, for example, software in software engineering, like uh, not having biases is is something we we you know, a lot of modern companies try to do. Again, you're you're wondering, well, you know, would they fit in? Because it seems that they didn't do their research on how to write a CV. And and that that is a signal though already. The, the same way as if someone shows up to the interview, like, you know, we, we talked about hiring, we didn't talk about hiring manager, but on the hiring manager interview, one of the red flags that I had, which was a no for people, people did not know what our company did. Mm. Uh, and I'm not oh. joking. And when I worked at Uber, some people were like, oh, so uh, yeah, my question is, uh, and this was when we had multiple lines of businesses and Uber East was all our major is like, so what comes after cabs? Cause, cause it seems you're just a taxi company. <laughs> it was a reject. They, they just did not, they came to the onsite, spent a whole day there and they did not do a Google on, on what the company did. And this is, so for Uber, it was like, we were, I, I tell myself we're big enough, but actually for any company, if, if you did not take that basic thing to be curious, it's a no. Same thing with resumes. If you did not take the basic time to understand in this country, in this industry, what does a resume format look like? You're a Google search away, literally. I'm sorry, but it's a high chance. The only time you, you would be a yes if you're one of the very few applic- applicants and, and the company doesn't have a choice. Absolutely. Do your research, guys. Come on. So um, to to wrap up, Gergay, so where can we connect with you and where can we find more information about the book? So I, I write uh, on the blog called thepragmaticengineer.com. I, I write frequent essays about software engineering and, and things that I've learned. I'm also on Twitter at Gergay Oros. And the best place to learn about the book, uh, it's either on engguidebook.com, which is the, the new book, and all my books are listed on my on my website. So on pragmaticengineering.com, there's a newsletter I, I send once a month for anyone interested in engineering and some of the insights. So you can connect me there on, on Twitter and also over email. It's, it's listed on the website. It was great catching up with Gergay. You can find links to his profile, blog, and book in the episode description. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe or follow. Thanks again and stay safe.